so what are you invested in? Now that seems like an innocent enough question, right? But boy, does context really matter here. If I say, what are you personally invested in versus what stocks are you invested in versus what marketing strategies has your company invested in, the answer and the depth of the level of investment, well, it's going to be really different. Now, if you look up the origin of the word invest, it comes from the Latin investir, which means to clothe in or cover, surround. In other words, to put yourself in new clothing or attributes. And to me, beyond just marketing, it's funny how we've convinced ourselves that there's something like the emperor's new clothes to the word investing. We dress up this word to make it sound like we're doing things that are much more important than just spending money. Professional pundits will say things like, the investment missed estimates. Um, no, your estimate missed the investment. Or somebody will say, the investment didn't beat the expectation. This one I love because if you expect something to beat or exceed your expectations, you don't know what the meaning of the word expectation is. And then there's the classic, you know, our strategy is really to maximize our returns and minimize our risks because, you know, the rest of us want to do exactly the opposite, right? And of course, this last one is truly the magic word in the investment conversation, return. What was your return? Because that's the difference between an investment and an expense. With investing, we are indeed clothing our money in a new form, and we expect that value to increase over time. And expense is something we do and expect equivalent value in the moment. Nobody ever claimed that that grande mocha latte was an investment, but man, was it totally worth the expense. And in marketing, we desperately want this to be a simple equation. We put Y money in and get X money out, and if you get more X than Y, and it was a good investment. But it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. The challenge, of course, is time. Because here's the thing. Every single investment looks like an expense in the short term. It's only when we set the stage for that investment to increase in value over time that it even becomes an investment. And that's the theme for our show today. Investing in content or expensing content? What are you doing with your strategy? Neither's really better than the other, but knowing the difference, well, that means everything. And with that, time to cash in my investment, and it's time for us to ring the bell and start our trading day here at PNR. You ready to get on with the bulls and the bears of content? Let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 133 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, May 30th, 2016, Memorial Day here in the United States. And with me, as always, is my friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the Warren Buffett of content marketing investment, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I would love to be the Warren Buffett of content marketing. That's... You, you, don't, you don't need to love to be, though. You are the oh, Warren Buffett. That's... You are the, the guru of Nebraska, only that we'll call you the, the maven of Cleveland. How about well, that? Or... <laughs> you know what I love? What I, the, the best story that I love about Warren Buffett is the fact that he still lives in his house that I think he purchased in like 1951 or something like that. That's right. And, and he drives a station wagon, oh, I think it's something. Or see, he... that's, that's, yeah. how it's, that's how it's supposed to be. 
Like the, all these, yeah. like like Drake and those other rap stars, they just don't have it. It's all Warren Buffett, man. <laughs> they don't have a station wagon. That is true. They do not have a station. And I can confirm that because Drake actually lives in my neighborhood. Is that right? Here in Los Angeles. He does indeed. Yes. I thought he lived in Toronto and, um, because he's a part owner of the Toronto Raptors. Well, I know that that's true, but he, well, let me put it this way. He has a house in a neighborhood that is close to mine. So one of his seven. I don't know whether he actually, yeah. one of his millions one of, of his, houses, right? And uh, I can tell you that his neighbors are, in, are annoyed with him because he has very loud parties. Do you ever get invited so, to the Drake parties? I do not. Um, I do not. I, there was no apple pie for me. There was no, <laughs> there was no showing up with the neighbors saying, welcome to the neighborhood when we moved in or anything like that. It was uh, nothing. No, we don't get in, and we don't get invited to anywhere in the neighborhood. Really, we've we're we're um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, next time I'm I'm coming to visit you, let's just go toilet paper's house or something like that. And see what sure, happens. Sure, or just show up. Just, we'll hey, just show up and knock on the door. I'll say I'm hello, the, Mr. Drake. Hello, I'm the Warren Buffett <laughs> of content marketing, and then slam. <laughs> don't you know who I am? <laughs> I am the Warren Buffett. Do you know? Do you know where marketing. I am? Let me in. <laughs> Oh, anyways, ha- yeah, uh, happy Memorial Day, and uh, just want to yes, big thank shout you out for all of those, and in memory of all of those who have fallen sh- and and gave service to our country and for shout sure. Shout out to my dad, who was who served in the army for many years, and and uh, many other oh, people that, right? that I know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's 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 a special time to think about that. Yeah, it is. I think a lot of people don't realize that we celebrate Memorial Day because of that, but there you go. Now now all our listeners do. Just in case. Yes, well, and and many mistake that it's actually not that we shouldn't celebrate those who have served in totality, but the Memorial Day itself was born in the Civil War to, it was called a a Decoration Day, I think it was, where we mourned those who had fallen. So it is specifically around those who have fallen, but certainly we thank everyone who has served. You are a wealth of knowledge. I do. I know I have a lot of trivial knowledge about things that sort of occupy spaces in my brain that probably they shouldn't. But yes, I I, I do know that little factoid. (laughs) I think we we both have a a wealth of useless information in our (laughs) heads. There is definitely. That one time, there's that that one moment where you're like, hey, I'm glad I knew that. But other than that, doesn't come in handy. Yeah, exactly. That little factoid will not come around again until you know Memorial Day That's next right. year, and, and then you can I'll, do it all over I'll trot again. it out. Yes, exactly. I'll trot it out over a year <laughs> whatever, and say, "Did you know?" Whatever it takes. <laughs> all right. Did so? It, did you get any information about news coming out this week? Well, it was a slow news week, as you might expect, but we do have lots and lots of things to chat about for sure. And the first story that we have is an older post, actually, but it's one we didn't talk about on the show when it came out. But it's really for one, it fits the theme perfectly. But two, it's it's something that sort of resurfaced um, and hit both of our inboxes. And the title of it is Content Marketing and Compounding Returns. And it comes uh, courtesy of a personal blog of Tom Tungas, do you do you know Tom? I, I, do you know of I Tom? I do not. No, I do not. All right. Well, he is a venture capital, um, uh, venture capitalist, I would say, and and it's his personal blog, and it goes all the way back um, to talking when Mike Volpe was still CMO of HubSpot. So that will give you some indication of its age. And he says, a few weeks ago, I joined Mike uh, of HubSpot on the Growth Show, where we had a great time talking about a few uh, SaaS uh, software as a service topics. A few listeners to the podcast picked a line from that podcast that he thinks is really important for content marketing. He said, quote, 
quote, content is one of the few forms of marketing that has a compounding return, end quote. And he goes on to say, like a bank account that starts out small and earns incremental gains, but over time becomes quite large, content marketing efforts require consistent investment, but ultimately can yield enormous results. HubSpot's efforts prove that maxim. They, they attract more than 1 million readers per month to their blog. And so, I mean, this is kind of a well-worn topic for us, but I think it's worth, It's I, I like the fact here that we're finally seeing some traction, I think, at least I don't know whether I'm sort of, you know, it's one of those things where you're looking for it and so you see it everywhere, but I'm starting to see a lot more people talk about this idea of content as a different kind of investment model. It's certainly the topic of everything I've been talking about for the last six months, but are you seeing this too? Is this, you know, or what did you think about Well, in this? spots. I think we're seeing, seeing it in spots because <clears throat> still I don't think we have a large number of marketers that are thinking about the asset side of this thing. Of yes, course, fair enough. That's, that's a fair I point. I mean, even in, in managing content marketing, that fine book that we put together in, what was that, 2012, fine, fine 11, 2011. Yeah, we, 2011. We have a whole yeah. section on you know building this as an asset. And by the way, a uh, shout out to Eric Moore, because I know it hit your inbox as well, but Eric Moore uh, sent this over to me through, uh, through, that's through right. LinkedIn. But you know, it's, when I read this, Robert, I thought, this is one of the reasons why it's hard to show an asset when you go after real-time marketing. Because the, the article talks about the fact that evergreen posts, specifically B2B, but evergreen posts versus, versus what he calls temporal temporal posts, I guess, yeah, uh, or right. time-based post. yep. time yep. posts, or yep. you're trying to exactly. react to news. It's just much, much harder right. because if it's something time-based, you, you have to get traction immediately, and then it's pretty much gone. Because you're on to the next, you know, hundred or you know, thousand articles if you're the Washington Post that you're writing every day. But what was it was interesting? I just went to Content Marketing Institute analytics, and I just I really wanted to know. I'm like, okay, let's play this out on CMI site and just see, you know, our older posts. Well, what kind of asset is that bringing to us long term? So here's some of the stats I have. There's there's one specific post. I wrote this post. It was it was called "What Is Content Marketing." I wrote it in 2007, <laughs> and we switched our analytics stuff, so I only have the stats from 2012. So this is just from November of 2012. That one post alone has over one million page views. Just that right. one post. It's 500, basically 500 per day in the bank. You don't have to do anything. You're just we're just getting them. From that standpoint, and then I went. Okay, so I said, okay, May of 2016. We're ending May here as we do this podcast. How many of our top ten posts are older? Or and what I did was it was actually our top ten pages. We have four posts in our top ten pages, and that's including all our landing pages and everything like that. We got one from 2013, one from 2011, one from 2010, one from 2007. Which I just think if. It, if you if you don't go beyond a year, which most programs don't, as we talk about consistency, <laughs> you don't see maybe the best thing about content marketing online is these kinds of results. It's well, it's ex exactly right. I mean, and 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 even taking your example here one step further, I think one of the things that you got to point out is that, and I don't, I haven't seen the statistics on this, but I will just hypothesize that this is true, which is because I because I hear it anecdotally when I go visit clients and whatnot is they they go, 
that what is content marketing or that blog post is their sort of, you know, <laughs> gateway Initiation. drug, if you will, yeah. into the CMI, right? I mean, then they take an action because of that post. It's not that they just view the page and go, okay, great, satisfied, now I'm away. But that's where they subscribe to the newsletter. That's where they learn that there's actually a podcast available. That's where they learn that there's this wonderful event that they could attend. And they actually come in that way. It's actually the entry door. It's not just a page view that's generating because of an organic search result or something like that. And that's, you know, I can tell you, now I can tell you empirically because I've actually seen the results of a client that I worked with that has this exact thing where they invested in evergreen white papers and put them out. And quite frankly, they eh, they did OK during their time, you know, during the first six months of their existence. And quite frankly, they were seen as kind of a loss. They were like, yeah, we, you know, we were too ahead of our time or we didn't talk about things that resonated. But all of a sudden, a year and a half later, they started getting a flurry of new leads with this new this this white paper that they'd created 18 months earlier and all of a sudden they went what the heck happened well what had happened was some influencer had found the white paper really resonated with it wrote a great blog post on the white paper linked to it and it all of a sudden became their gateway for these new leads and when we start measuring things in that campaign mindset content in that campaign mindset we lose all capacity to sort of take advantage of that long-term investment model that content can provide. And I think that's what this guy makes so wonderful, the point he makes so wonderfully in this in this post. But it's just something that hopefully we can start to have a mind shift that really looks at content in a different way. Well, look, let's go to your, so the, the theme that you, you so aptly put together in the opening was investing. So if you look at it from an right. investment standpoint and you say, okay, I'm going to be an individual investor and you look at, let's say, 10 stocks, because they you're going to choose 10 stocks because you want to diversify, and you, you don't want to put all That's your right. bets into one thing, like we do with a campaign, right? So you pick those 10, and basically what happens with those 10, you've got five that are just, okay, they, they perform fine, but they're, you know, nothing great about it, but they're, they perform in line, and you're still happy with it. And then you've got three that are stinkers. They just, oh, that didn't hit at all. You know, we're not going to do that again. That just doesn't resonate with our audience. And you have two that are home runs. So if you think about it that way from a content creation standpoint, I think that holds up. At least that does with us and a lot of the clients that you've been talking to. It's the same kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. It's building It's building the collection, yeah. right? So call it a portfolio if you like. It's building the collection, right? Whether you call that a digital magazine or a blog or a print magazine or a TV network or a resource center or an academy or a university or whatever your thematic collection of content is, it is exactly that, a portfolio of content that contributes that because one exists, it makes all the others more valuable. And then to this guy's point, when we start talking about the ephemeral or temporal content that we create, the key there is that if we know what that temporal content is supposed to do, in other words, where it's supposed to lead to, the bigger value that it's supposed to lead to, which is hopefully a subscription Subscriber. or engagement or a lead or whatever it, you know our goal is for that p particular piece of content, well, then we can treat it as such. In other words, that newsjacking piece isn't just there for the eyeball. It's there to say, great, we've taken advantage of this news to give you something fun or interesting or educational and topical that will that will by design fade away with the wind. But the hope is, is that it, it, it spurs you to take that further action into a deeper piece that we're actually using that piece to promote. 
In other words, we're, we're taking advantage of the news to promote the fact that we have this amazing ebook that you should be reading or that you should understand our approach or that you should enroll in our university or that you should engage with our webinar series or whatever it is. Those ephemeral pieces become catalysts to pull in audiences into the bigger, deeper, more meaningful pieces, the evergreen pieces. Well, I love the point, and it, you have to really focus on this because you basically talk about, okay, how do you cash in on your investment? And that you and I work with so much, how many how many companies <laughs> right. have you and I work with that that actually this model is working really well for them, but all their calls to action goes <clears throat> go to products. Try the demo, right. do this product thing, and you're like you, you basically you, you chop off that experience right away. You're like, oh no no, you got to buy right away, or it's all about us. But if you then get that subscriber, you you can then value that. You can value you can that's you can, right. That's there's a pure valuation there where you can say a, scri- a subscriber is worth X amount because this is how a subscriber behaves differently than somebody that doesn't engage in our content, and it's really really simple. Exactly. And we, we overcomplicate it sometimes. And I say, you know, when I'm talking to small businesses, they're like, oh, we don't have the technology to do this. I'm like, just take your subscriber list and compare it against your customer database. What what's right. different? It does. It's not actually right. that hard to do that. You can actually do it with an Excel right. spreadsheet if you want to, or just take your subscriber list and look at the look at the wonderful insights that that subscriber list provides you. Where are your customers yep. coming from? Who are they? These are these are these are these are customers that wanted to give you data because you gave them something of value, and thus that value in that data is high. This gets to my rant and rave later on in the show, but that's the that's you know it's not just the fact that they're going to buy. That's obviously something we really want them to do, or stay longer, or decrease our customer service costs, or whatever. But it's also the fact that they'll they'll give us value in the data itself. We can understand are we reaching them? Is the ad that we use to pull them in the right property? All that stuff right we can start to look at the data that they're providing and giving us much more well that's i think the missing step with a lot of the enterprises that we work with because they go from content to lead especially b2b companies specifically technology that's right companies really uh and they and we always say no 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 you go to subscribers and your leads come from subscribe. How many times have we talked about this on this podcast? And I just had a conversation the other day with a, with a company that they weren't doing that. They're like, oh, we need more and more and more leads. Okay, that's fine. Yes, but you're not right. going to go from content to lead. How many times are you going to go from content to lead? Yeah, you're going to get lucky on occasion. But let's do it the right, right. way. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there. All right. <laughs> All right. Moving on to our next story. This one. Um, in breaking news, this is breaking news, Joe. Are you ready for the breaking oh, news? I'm ready. Let's do it. Apple didn't buy Disney. Okay, so there's your breaking oh. news. It didn't happen. Yeah, I know. But it's going but to this happen. This story comes yeah, courtesy of, um, now I'm going to mispronounce this gentleman's name for sure. Um, and he didn't put his first name on his Twitter handle. So you should do that, by the way. Jay Pogact. Po- po- it's either Pogact or Pogact. Um, a uh, big hat tip to Jay Pogact on Twitter for hashtagging us up here with this story idea. Um, and it comes courtesy of adage.com. It says, guess what? Apple is interested in becoming a Hollywood insider, but didn't have an interest in Time Warner. 
Uh, Even if Apple never made an actual move to buy Time Warner, the article starts out, a tentative approach shows that the iPhone maker is serious about getting into media content, except they're not going to buy Disney, just to be clear. Eddie Q, who's in charge of iTunes and Apple Music, brought up the idea of a possible deal with Time Warner corporate strategy head Olaf Olafsson, which is an awesome name, by the way, that is just such a great name. In a meeting last year, according to a person familiar with the situation, while the two never started negotiations, Time Warner, which owns HBO and Warner Brothers Studios, is on the top of the list of media companies Apple would buy should it eventually commit to the content business the person said. Except they're not going to buy Disney. So what say you, Joe? Is this, uh, is, it, is this literally your canary in the coal mine, or is this, um, is this just a, a little bit of a distraction? Well, you and I were talking before the show about how how <laughs> how long does does hardware actually boost up an organization? That's right. Exactly. It continually changed, and we talked about it, whether you look at Dell or Compaq or or HP or um, or now Apple. Would basically, it's I don't think it's any secret that iPhone sales are not as robust as they used to be. Well, Apple has yes. I don't know. I mean, I should look at this. The last time I checked was one hundred and thirty two billion dollars in cash on the sidelines. So yeah, how, they have a lot of money. They, have, they need to buy some. They're going to buy somebody. Go, it's not going to be Disney, but they're going to buy somebody. Would you stop that? Would you, why do you have to keep doing that? <laughs> it hurts every time you do that. <laughs> they, they will do that at some point. But it, it, they're going, I think that you're going yeah. to start to see them uh, take their, uh, their content portfolio, if you will, and continue to expand that because in the next 10 years, it's not going to be the iPhone for Apple. It's going to be something else. And and you t- you said this really well. Can you go through and talk about the connection? Because when you look at the growth of you were talking about the growth of the iPod and the iPhone, it was really about access to content. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it was you know. So if you look, if you go all the way back to two thousand seven, really, which is the advent of the iPhone, and then you even peel it back further, and you go back to roughly two thousand, the early two thousands, with when we were talking about iPods. You know, it wasn't about the, you know, the iPod was never about the iPod, right? That was just yet another MP3 player. And, you know, you can argue that it was better designed and it had, you know, but everything was about the launch of iTunes. And in fact, the iPod didn't really take off until iTunes launched. And when iTunes launched, it became this huge thing because you could immediately put a thousand songs in your pocket, you know, as the movie famously talks about. And you can look back in, in, over Apple's history and you can really see how the growth of the content, you know, the iPhone itself didn't really take off until the App Store came along and gave you a microcomputer in your hand. And it was really the content. Now where we're at with the competitors from Samsung and, and certainly from Microsoft to a much lesser degree and, 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 and really Android is this idea that that has become sort of a flattened playing field for everybody. The idea of a content store that is available that can develop apps and put it on your, put it in your hand. And so the evolution of the hardware, that's where you can start to see the flattening of the sales come along because quite frankly, how many times can you put in a more megapixel camera or put in something that's, you know, got a better processor and hope that people are going to, that's the, that's the challenge hardware has had since the beginning of time. Evolving hardware is incremental in nature and is always going to be incremental in nature unless it's accompanied by something that can actually drive 
the sale of that hardware. And in this case, and you know, the original was the iTunes and then, then it became the app store and who knows what it is now. So I, you know, look, we, we, we joke a lot with each other that it's not going to be Disney. They are going to buy somebody. They're, they're going to, they, you know, they're finding out that streaming audio is a more difficult business than, you know, than, uh, than first advertised. And, yeah. um, Jay Z's discovering that it's much harder than <laughs> ever advertised. And, but they're going to buy some. They're going to buy media. I just think they're going to buy somebody more diversified. I think than than Disney. More um, diversified think, you know, than I, Disney. How much yeah. more? Oh dear, here we go. You, how how right. diversified <laughs> do you want to be? Hey, I'm not gonna. I'm not like. I'm gonna. Let's get off this topic and let's talk about something else related to Disney. Is <laughs> okay. Here's here's where I think that everyone listening to this here's a huge opportunity. So uh, Disney bought the Star Wars franchise for. And I know, right. I know Lucas gave him a discount because he put it all to charity, but it was $4 billion. All right. Right. In 2000, in, in the 12 month cycle from when the new Star Wars launched, Disney is projecting over $5 billion in merchandising sales. Yes. So this is, this is a, this is exactly what we've been talking about with brands buying media companies to then, uh, scale up and accelerate their product sales. There's a huge opportunity there, and I think that most companies are missing it. Now, I think that Apple and Disney and those companies, they get that. But here's what I think in the next, I always say, next two to five years. No, it's really this next two to five years. This is really going. <laughs> right, exactly. Because I think, like, and I, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take like a Cisco buying a Wired, or it's going to take something like that where you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I think everybody would believe Apple would buy anything, and nobody would bat an eye about it. But That's I think, true. I mean, look, if, I mean, I would not, you know, so I would, I mean, look, I, I would be shocked and, and surprised, but if you really sort of pushed me on it, if they, if, if Apple did buy Disney, I would be like, yeah, I was wrong about that. But you know, I, it, with me, the, the, the Disney thing is much more about the company Disney than the idea that it's a media company. I, I, you know, I, I'm with you all, but I just don't think Disney is the one that they'll buy. All right. Yeah, you obviously have an issue with Disney. I don't know what uh, what I they do. did, did with I, you well, when you were younger or anything. <laughs> I don't think we should get into it. This is a, that's a different show altogether. Show me. But you show me where you, Walt. No, you, no, 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 you obviously have some some deep dark issues that we should talk about. I do separately. have some deep dark issues. Yeah. And we. Anyways, I think that what I like about this article is it's not about Apple. It's actually about everybody else. And That's when, right. when I get into these meetings, I had a meeting, this is about three, four months ago with a CMO of a large technology company. And I was kicking around this idea. Like I always do. I always bring it up. I'm like, Hey, have you ever thought about this? Never thought about it. CMO had never like, was like, what? Like we could do that. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. why not? It's amazing. What an opportunity that would be. And now they're starting to think about it, but it's just weird how uh, marketing executives are wired not to think about that as a possibility. When I think it should be one of the, you know, we're talking about building an asset. You, exactly. When you're when you're building an asset, you also look at should we buy the asset or should we buy pieces to create the overall experience of that asset or whatever it's going to do for the organization. And it, we're not there it's yet, the, but we're getting there. Yeah, no, it's the class. No, it's the classic. You know, it's the classic marketing mindset of uh, mindset of not invented here. If it wasn't invented there, then it's not marketing. It's not. It's that's some. But just exactly to your point, you know, the whole thing is building an ad. Marketing is changing, 
And so the idea of building an asset that adds value to the business, that it is itself a content platform, is a new way of thinking for marketing. And that's just, you know, I run into it too. It's, it's just a new way of thinking about how we're going to go and take our product and, to market. And for those of you that didn't listen to last week's, that, that was the whole article about Pepsi launching their content studio. Yeah, and the, exactly and the, right. and the CMO exactly of Pepsi right. was absolutely saying, we intend this to be to pay for all of our other marketing out of it. We want this to be a profit yeah. center and judged a little bit exactly. differently. And, you know, I think that there's no rule that says you can't. That's that's, that's the well, whole point. You know, right. But, no, there's no rule that says marketing has to do it in this way. There's we can do new things. We can do interesting things. Oh, well, the poster child did it. Red Bull did it. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Moving on to our uh, last story of the show here. This one is fascinating. It's just a fascinating, fascinating story. Um so we're going we're gonna to link to a blog post here on LinkedIn uh, that actually links to a study. Um, and this one, we both, um, it comes from a friend and family of the show, um, uh, Thomas uh, Berggren, who is uh, our friend in Sweden. We've both, uh, Joe and I have both done work with Thomas and his company. Um, and the article that he writes, the headline in LinkedIn is Scientific Support for Content Marketing. Um, and he goes on to talk about this research study that was done at the Stockholm School of Economics, and he says they have, with five empirical studies, shown a clear link between consumer willingness to voluntarily take part of a brand's advertising and the same brand's previous communications, brands that continuously offer value to consumers in how they communicate, for instance, by being useful, interesting, fun, or creative, will over time build a kind of trust capital, which is called advertising equity in this study. They, he links to the study itself, and it's just a fascinating read, so I would absolutely recommend it. As he says, the term advertising equity is a bit misleading, though, because advertising in the academic sense should be understood as all planned communication from an identifiable company with the purpose to get the recipients to act today or in the future in a way that supports the company's business. So within that would be what we are currently today calling content marketing, and it certainly fits into everything we've been talking about for the last you know, two years and everything we've been talking about certainly in the last 20 minutes here on this show. Um, what did you, um, did, did you actually read the study? I did, did not you, read did, the study yet. I did, I did read the blog post. I didn't get to the study yet. Um, did you go through it at all? I have, I've, I have, I've, I've saved it for my plane okay. reading for tomorrow, but I have read bits of it and, 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 and breezed through it and I plan on reading it in more detail, but it's, it's, it is a fascinating read. Well, it is academic. I will tell, I will say that it is academic. Well, you know, from, from, from what I can read. tell from the cliffs notes here that Tomas put together, I think this is a mic drop opportunity for content marketing right done yes <laughs> this, yeah the you know this we we haven't had a lot of uh, academic studies around content marketing there's there's like there's dozens in the works that i'm seeing but we haven't seen them yet so this is a really good one even though they call it advertising to your point this is about overall you know uh con communicating information over time to a specific audience and and i think that what i like about this whole thing is it really goes for the uh, pushes for consistency. It says that we we need to build on the expectation that they will continue, that we will continue to deliver valuable information and how intention is the most important thing here. And I don't know if you picked this out, but there's a, there's a point in, in some of the notes here that it basically says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you have a really, really strong brand or a really, really weak brand that if you can uh, focus on the pain points of that audience and deliver ongoing information and get that attention 
the payoff is immeasurable. And that's what I like about that. And that, and to do that, you have to do it over a long period of time. Did you read that? Did you read exactly. into that a little bit? I did. I did. You know, and, and what I took out of that, which um, it's so cool that we read the same thing and took a little bit of two different things out of it, not related things, but slightly different. What I took out of it was, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about um, uh, of late is this idea of when we create content, Basically, there is no such thing as a neutral experience, right? Nobody reads a piece of content that has a neutral experience. You either have a positive experience or you have a negative yep. experience. And so thus, if you're looking for a business case to slow down, r- reduce the amount of content you're creating, and really focus on the quality, that idea that there is no neutral experience, you're not just putting content out and having it have people go, wow, I really feel neutral about that. No, but if you, you, you are either creating something that is positive or you are, de- you know, you are putting out something that's detrimental to your brand. And this is a study that actually proves that, right? It actually shows that if you focus and create great quality content that creates interest, entertains, educates, you will start to build trust, which can be eroded by the idea of bad content. And so every piece of bad content you put out, just think of it eroding the trust. And every piece of great content you put out, think of it as building trust. And that is, a, you know, think about a different investment model. That's, that's the heart of it. It's, it's, what's, it's what that is. Unu- they talked about unusable a couple times in here. I love that. If advertising doesn't yeah. know. If it's not working, it's unusable. It actually will end up hurting your, uh, the, the cost effectiveness of, and that they talk a lot about cost effectiveness here because if you're creating content that's not being engaged in, you know that, that you're basically flushing money down the toilet. So exactly, I don't know. I it's exactly I, this right. could be. I, we have to really do something with this. I think so. Oh, I oh, trust me. I, I think there's a, there's a there's a there's a, <laughs> yeah, a there's a whole group of emojis that need to happen off of this. There's there's probably nice. infographics. I I mean, I'm just guessing. <laughs> emojis. <laughs> Well, you could, yeah. I mean, kid, you could do that, right? No, there will not be. Yes. Okay, so look, I will not be putting <laughs> emojis out with this. this is, <laughs> hey, we're going back to those days. It's going, it's, it's going back to the dark ages when people people just communicated through pictures. <laughs> That's exactly what we're we're gonna we're going back to that level. We've we've sunk to that level of emoji communication. We, there it is. Well, <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, we're going back to emoji-based communications. No. Oh, well, nice. I, I guess just to finish this up, the over and over again in this study, they talk about the value of long-term communications to a specific audience. And oh, sp- I wrote this like, down. Equi- and an yeah. equitable exchange of communications. Equitable exchange. Yes. That's the most important. If you're not delivering value, if there's not some value equation that's going to help that audience. So that, that's a really easy thing to do is to look at your own communications right now and to say, well, is this just about us or is this helping our audience in some way? And for the most, most part, the companies that I go into and look at their content, 90% is probably about the company. If maybe more, exactly. maybe more. So. And here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thing about that because just going back to the previous story we were talking about, one of the things because me, what people will say to me uh, many times is they they hear something like that. They hear something related to that, which is that creation of value, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, well, okay, but where does that put something like newsjacking or the real time marketing or something that you know the Oreo dunk in the dark or something you know basically where it's only we only going to live it for you know, a few hours, minutes, you know, take advantage of some meme that's going around or whatever. Where does that put that kind of content? Because is that truly 
valuable or investing in evergreen content? And I say, yes, it is. Because just exactly to your point, one of the ways that we can create that equitable transaction, and this doesn't mean that we're talking about us, but if we help somebody get to the more helpful content, that can be helpful in and of sure. itself. In other words, if we put out the tweet or we put out that, you know, something happens in the news, and we do this all the time at Content Marketing Institute, and we put out a link to an older post or to a current post that helps people, you know, understand and get access to, you know, making people aware of the content can be an equitable or valuable transaction. It's just what, what are, when we look at the content strategy, we think, great. Here is, and this gets to what I was talking to in the, in, the, in the intro, is, great, here is your mocha latte. The mocha latte is an access point into the deeper meaning of what we're doing as a product or a solution or a service or whatever it is. Now, there better be some deeper meaning there that you want to pull them into, because if all you're doing is creating transaction after transaction after transaction, well, then you're, you're not building anything. But if you're creating transactions on top of having built something and pulled something into something that's truly valuable, well, now you're actually using that content to build value into the thing that you've invested in, you've put all this money in. That itself can be helpful. And so it's not just we have to always avoid being promotional. It's what are we being promotional about? You know what I got out of that whole thing was I really enjoy that, that mocha and latte were said together. Like I really, <laughs> I really, I think that Dude, those are, I, it is, those are two words that just need to go with each other. It's my, it's, it's my go-to, right? It's my go. I could, first of all, I, I love me a good mocha latte. I mean, if anybody's, <laughs> so if anybody works for Starbucks and want to send me a bunch of mocha lattes, I, I will gladly take them. See, I've, I've just I, been into I, the lattes. You're, you're saying really go, I mean, commit to the latte. And go with the mocha latte. Oh my latte. gosh, dude. If you have not... Okay, so here's what you got to do. Next time you're at a Starbucks or a coffee yeah. bean and tea leaf or your fa- whatever your favorite barista-driven coffee place is, get a mocha latte, but have them do like half of the chocolate that they would normally put in. Because normally when they make a mocha latte, it's way too sweet. It, it's, like, it's like candy. Just, just a just hint. Half the amount just of a chocolate, hint of mocha in my just latte. Just a hint of the chocolate. Oh, that's that's... That's God-given mocha right there is what that is. That is just, uh, that's, that's mana from heaven is what that is. That's good stuff. I'll just put, I'll, I'll just say uh, that my name is Bueller so that when they say, Bueller, your mocha latte is right. Bueller. Anyways, I love that. That was cool. Oh, speaking of mocha lattes, we have a wonderful mocha latte of a, of a sponsor to talk about. That is, we, we just need to absolutely, it's, it, it must be time for daunting. Oh, oh don't give it I'm away. Thinking. There might be somebody oh, that right, hasn't right. listened to it. <laughs> so okay. a very special thanks to our sponsor this week, GoToWebinar. And Robert, I'm, I know you know this by now, but webinars are consistently rated as the number one marketer tactic for lead generation with over 60% of all marketers utilizing webinars. But many businesses still struggle with how to find their target audience and deliver the right message. Following a simple five-step plan, the keys to using webinars for successful lead generation go from daunting but doable. Daunting to doable, that's exactly right. From finding your audience and developing engaging content to authentic interaction and webinar promotion, you'll discover the five steps to attract your target audience to your next webinar. <laughs> I don't know, I just went into radio voice. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, just, right? it just feels Super. like you have to, like once you do the tagline. 
So you have to go check out. If you haven't checked out this ebook, please do. It's fantastic. Go to cmi.media slash PNR133. That's cmi.media slash PNR133 to get the five steps to attract your target audience to your next webinar. Very valuable piece of marketing. GoToWebinar is our sponsor again this week. Thanks so much. And we certainly appreciate your support. So it's a I mean, we we kid because we love, but it's a great asset. You should you should go look at this thing because it's really it's just very pragmatic and really helps you sort of sort that web because webinars are webinars can be a tough thing and and it and often gets sort of overlooked in the business. It's sort of like yeah, we've got this, we got this down, but this really shows you how to sort of take a take a pragmatic look at it and value it for how how truly valuable it can be. And we and you and I talked about this. We're we're on we need to get on the phone with the go to webinar folks because we're thinking that get some t shirts. We, we had many, many tweets last week about about the t shirt yes. cause and I think that this is something that needs to be a t shirt. If anything would need to be Absolutely. besides mocha latte, daunting to doable is a t shirt. There you go. Mocha latte marketing is what I'm gonna do. Hashtag mocha latte. You better take you better get the, the domain right now. Because it's a thing. It's a thing. (laughs) It's a thing. All right. Speaking of things, it is time for your favorite segment of the show, folks. It is time for our rants and raves section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that has made us feel like we're spending so much money and getting nothing in return or making us feel like we truly are the Warren Buffett of content marketing investing. Um, And so let's see. You go first because you have this old marketing. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, so, okay. So I'm in the car yesterday with the boys and my oldest yeah. says, Hey dad, did you know that Matt Pat was, uh, interviewed the Pope? And I, I said, first of all, but by the way, first of all, Matt Pat is Matthew Patrick is a very popular YouTuber yes. who runs the game theory channel. And, uh, right. and he's been on the cover of chief content officer magazine. He's spoken at content marketing world. So I go and I ask my son, I said, is this a real, so you are now one degree away from the Pope. I'm getting there. Well, we don't know yet because yeah. I asked, I oh, asked okay. my son, right. I said, oh, okay. is this All a right. real thing or, or somebody making this up? Because it could be made up. I he says, it. no, no, no. It's yeah. actually a real thing. So, of course, as I get most of my content from my kids, I, will go, to, I go to the article and I find this on Teen Vogue. And I'm not a normal reader of Teen Vogue, but I got to say I like this article. No? Oh, uh, so, right. so Teen Vogue uh, has... Fantastic magazine, a, Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue has this article called, uh, <laughs> The Pope Just Met with Some of YouTube's Biggest Influencers. And the subhead was classic. Blessed art thou who create content. I mean... Come on. <laughs> That's so awesome. It is so awesome. Blessed art thou who create content. So anyways, here's a, here's a little bit from the article. Thou doth no post, no <laughs> cheesy content. <laughs> here's, here's a little part I want to read from the article. So it says, as part of a three-day summit for youth outreach, the Pope met with 11 YouTubers to start a discussion about using the internet for good, and also because the Pope probably... Uh, Loki wants to learn about how to be an internet influencer. I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. But, he wants to show people, hey, how do you play yeah, these like, video games? Yeah, I was like, how do you do this? Do I have to be this? consistent with my video <laughs> distribution method? Um, so, Pope's going to start a makeup channel. <laughs> you know how big that would be? Anyways, um, so from a press release on their meeting earlier today, it says, the conversation with Pope Francis is the latest example mm-hmm. of creators coming together to passionately advocate 
for issues they believe in, such as creating a more mm. tolerant, empathetic, and diverse web. During the meeting with the Pope, those creators raised topics they hope to continue exploring as YouTube role models. I didn't know that was a thing. But anyways, YouTube role models, yeah. including how to counter online hate through tolerance, empathy, and education. Now, my rant on this is that is this. It's, it's just simply put. Anyone with any budget can accomplish anything if they build a platform. Regardless of what you might think about people's attention span, the content clutter out there, breaking through all that clutter with your message, it is as easy right now to build a platform than at any time in human history. These, All these YouTubers, I was looking them up, including Matt Pat, they had very little budget, if any, and now each of them are superstars able to meet with the Pope because they consistently published interesting content to a target audience. And, and an article like this just... just warms my heart robert so that's my it's, that's my yeah. rave for the week congratulations that's such a great point though i mean that's such a great point it's you know so that there uh, you, you're familiar with that you've seen this me me do this before there's a wonderful video of steve jobs um out there on the internet and it's from you know sort of the early late 80s early 90s um, steve back when you had the full hipster beard thing going on for him and he's being interviewed and he says, you know, he says very, you know, he's talking about the meaning of life in this, in this video. And he says, one of the things that you need to understand is that all of these wonderful things that you look around and you look and see in the world and that you call life, you need to remember that all of these wonderful, amazing things were invented by people that were no smarter than you. And he said, once you realize that, once you start experimenting and, as he says, poking life, you'll see that things poke out on the other side. This is exactly what your point is, which is so wonderful, which is we look at these people that create these amazing audiences, these YouTube stars. And we have to remember that these, these are, they're no doubt they're talented, some of them, and there are no doubt that they're persistent, most of them. But we have to remember that there's nothing precluding us from doing exactly what they're doing. Whether we're a brand, we just have to have the courage and the ability to go do it. It's, it's, it, it's, yeah, it warms my heart too. Well, it's, 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 it's exactly. It's so funny in the MatPat situation, he was, <clears throat> he just started the YouTube channel because he wanted a resume builder because he was having trouble getting a job. He had a lot of education, he had right. very little experience. He was coming from the stage, he was an actor. And he's like, how am I going to get into business? He's like, well, maybe if I do, you know, a YouTube channel thing. And here we are. He's got, uh, the the boys are telling me I think he's got over six million subscribers on YouTube now. I mean it's that's that's yeah. impressive to do that. And it, it, and and any any company saying they don't have enough budget is is laughable when you look at every one right. of these eleven examples and they were able to do it. Yeah. So exactly. All right. right. Well, um, I, I don't know whether mine is a rant or a rave. Um, it's just kind of commentary. It's, it's it, interestingly, and we didn't talk about this, but it's, it's not dissimilar from what you just, because um, it was sort of something that made me sort of pivot toward the idea of content marketing. Um, the article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from Adweek. Um, and the headline of the article is about two technology companies that are combining the idea of market research and programmatic advertising. And boy, did that sound buzzy and buzzwordy <laughs> when I read it. And I was like, all right, let me go read this. 
And so the article opens up by saying advertisers target consumers all the time online, but they don't always have a survey of a sample of the actual target segment to figure out the mindsets in real time. And so the announcement here is, is that these two companies, Crux, K-R-U-X, uh, and Servada, they aim to make that tactic easier to execute. Basically, what they're going to do is Crux, a data management platform, is announcing, a, as they call it, a data science as a service offering, which I already have issues with, but all right, that's <laughs> fine, offering that leans on features called Crux Feed, which focuses on data. And basically, it's a, as they say, a machine learning system that basically is designed to free up and get information about what audiences care about, like, et cetera, et cetera. That brings us to Servada, which is where they're bringing this partnership together, which is a San Francisco-based survey company. And they're launching a client, a, when I say client, I mean a software client, for Crux's new offering that will mesh these two companies' systems to offer advertisers the ability to not only interview consumers online about their wants and needs about particular campaigns, but other things that they can start to use. And then, of course, that's where Crux comes in and starts to use its quote-unquote machine learning to understand um, what that what you know what those surveys really mean in terms of the way they deliver programmatic advertising and so okay so now that's the set and I read that article and I'm you know I'm passionate and love technology and start to go oh that's really interesting so here's what I say about this now I don't know whether this is a rant or a rave or just commentary in general but in theory this sounds wonderful right I mean this sounds great we've got this idea that we can use this huge reach called advertising to target customers interview them survey style about their wants and needs and cares and desires and gaps, et cetera, and then use that data along with machine learning. By the way, that term I'm really coming to dislike because just like our theme with investment, it's becoming this like synonymous with magic, right? Ooh, you've got machine learning. You wouldn't understand that. It's machine learning. It's amazingly for anyway. So we take the machine learning and we use the data that we glean from these surveys to target programmatic advertising. Yay, voila, start printing money, right? Now we've got survey-based programmatic advertising. It's nirvana, right? I mean, it sounds great. Just a couple of quick notes, though. And by the way, nothing against these technologies. I, in fact, the crux thing, I started burying myself in their website. It sounds fascinating. And they call their platform, get ready for it, they call their platform audience data management. So I've really started looking into these technologies, and I actually do think there's something really interesting there. By the way, so do investors, to the tune of $35 million in the investment in Crux. And so their digital data management platform, it's really interesting. So check. But here's the thing. The most obvious and biggest weakness of this whole grand master plan here is what's right in front of their faces, which is what? Audience. You call it audience data management. The only valuable word in that three-word phrase is audience. So where do you get them? Who are they? Where are they? Why do they care? This could be garbage in, garbage out, right? If we start doing this in the wrong way. You know, remember when we were going to, back in the day, we were going to pay people to watch ads and we were going to give them free computers to watch and, you know, rate advertising and all this kind of stuff. And that didn't work out so well. So without an audience, this stuff is quite frankly worthless. So, that brings me to, if only there was a way, if there was this methodology, this approach, where we could gather a group of people together who were really looking to solve problems or be entertained or be engaged, answer questions, and use the aggregation of those people as some means of delivering value to them or some methodology to 
deliver images or videos or text or what if we could call that like content? No, no, no. How about research marketing? No, I know. How about advertising? No, I know. How about content marketing? And if we gathered that audience of relevant people who were aligned with purpose, but were grateful for the value that we provided them and then turned a technology like this crux upon them, not only asking them what they cared about, but observing what they cared about, which blog posts they read, which content they consumed, what they shared, what their friends shared, what inspired them to comment on this post, what inspired them to read longer forms of it, and we used machine learning to do that, what would that give us? And so, Joe, I'm going to announce a new product company today. I'm mashing together two hot companies. It's called Big Data and Content Marketing. I'm calling it BigDataContentMarketing.com. It's going to be Mocha Latte is your friend. (laughs) And machine learning with a social mobile commerce engagement engine with programmatic account-based marketing suite that offers ROI in native advertising branded content value-added ways. It's a winner. I know you're going to invest in it. Trust me. I've run it through an algorithm. End of my rant. (laughs) I, I think you should tell the audience how you really feel. I said, this is really what I <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I uh, I had a question. This is a couple of weeks ago. And somebody asked, we were talking about content marketing world. And they said, uh, well, wh- and why do so many marketing automation companies sponsor content marketing world? And I said, because if that audience doesn't create valuable content, their technology is not going to work. And they're going to not <laughs> sign up for it again. <laughs> it's just some people just you know you look at the technology first uh, love it nice work yeah. my friend yeah thank you and i have i guess i have this old marketing you have I this do. old marketing this week. you had a couple yes, in a row a so i was lovely change yeah, of i wasn't used i did to this. okay I did indeed. so our this old marketing example this week comes courtesy of mark del sasso who's at video arc on twitter so thank you mark and the example is of Thomas Chippendale. Now, just for the ladies out there, this is not Steve Bangery who started Chippendales. This is not Chippendales that, that oh, you love. That. Right. This is Thomas. Every time I think of Chippendales now, I cannot get over the Chris Farley oh, and, and Patrick his, Swayze oh thing. God, that was, oh, yeah, yeah it, oh. exactly. Anyway. Uh, Thomas Chippendale. <laughs> I digress. Thomas Chippendale was a London-based cabinet maker and furniture designer. Not quite as popular as, as Steve Bangery, but hey, here they go. So the, sh- the short story is this. While a very while a very talented interior designer and cabinet maker, Chippendale was a journeyman who didn't necessarily find success until he produced a book called The Gentleman and Cabinet Maker's Director, which was a book where <laughs> Chippendale shared the work behind his designs. The book went I guess you could call it viral for its time in the design community. Catherine the Great and Louis XVI both possessed copies of the director, and the book became used by many other cabinet makers. And from then on, there were at least 26 commissions that we know of where Chippendale was hired, which were almost all dukes or aristocrats of some sort that paid very, very handsome handsome sums. It says uh, here in the article, at the peak of his success, his firm would act like a modern interior designer working with other specialists and undertake the supply of fully decorated and furnished rooms or whole houses once the principal construction was done. The printed book and engraved plates are housed at the Metropolitan Museum in New York with the following description. So here's a full description of Mr. Chippendale. Thomas Chippendale 
established his cabinet-making firm in London in the mid-18th century. The first edition of his celebrated pattern book, The Gentleman and Cabinet-Maker's Director, was published in, 19, in, I'm sorry, in 1754, and the term Chippendale is regularly used to describe English Rococo, or if that's right, Rococo furniture, yeah. inspired yeah, by yeah. its illustrated designs. The book contains 161 engraved plates for a wide range of domestic furniture in, in the Gothic Chinese and Rococo styles, as well as a series of plain domestic pieces. A virtually identical second edition was issued in 1755, and a third enlarged and revised edition appeared in 1762. The book sold well and helped the firm attract many fashionable clients, including the actor David Garrett. Chippendale's patterns were popular abroad, especially in North America, and the museum has many many pieces inspired by the designs from the director. So I just thought that this was it because, you know, isn't that fascinating? And what I thought of was this is a lot of, you know, professional services firms. This is what we're talking about. They don't want to give their secret sauce away. And here's Thomas Chippendale gives his secret sauce away in a book and just the business goes crazy. And of course, as oh, I got to do another yeah. book and another book on it. So, and that is that, my friends, is this week's this old marketing example. And special I thanks again I mean, to and, Mark and Del Sasso for sending this one in. I one of the reasons I love that so much is because what he was selling was an experience. You know, w- when you were talking about how he would go in and sort of take ownership of the entire interior design. You know, here's here's a company that could ostensibly sell cabinets right uh, and and sort of come in and work with a designer etc but he basically sold the experience of designing a room and made cabinets the centerpiece of that and then sort of the experience as it expresses itself in this wonderful book which is this is what you you know this is this is what you're after this is art this is what you're trying to create and in, in the uh in you know in your room or your office or your bedroom or whatever oh and by the way we're also a cabinet maker it's it's Talk about somebody who really understood the why they were in business, the sort of their their core why. That's that's just really you great. know when, when you that. said that. Go back to the uh, the story of content documentary where you've got Marcus Sheridan, and my one of my favorite lines from that documentary is the biggest epiphany that he had in his life. So Marcus Sheridan, you know, very popular, yeah. river pools and spas, has the blog, went you know, incredibly successful. Said. What he realized was he is first and foremost the leading teacher about swimming pools to consumers. And by the way, they also happen to sell and install secondarily. That's right. So it's yeah. secondary to your mission as an organization. And I think that's what you just said with, uh, with Thomas Chippendale. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah. So that's we have awesome. some team meetings this week, which will be cool. I'll get we to see do. in a couple of days. So. I know I get to go to Cleveland. I'm I'm excited about that, and then I get you know it's a nice little round trip for me because then I'm off to Chicago um, to uh, to go. I'm keynoting the ANA BMA Masters of Marketing, their big annual event. I'm the keynote on the last day, which is Friday, so I'm excited about that. Um, and then the wife and I are actually going to spend the weekend in Chicago. We're going to do the deep dish pizza tour oh, and yeah. all that stuff. So yeah, really looking forward. Do to Do a little Geno's East. Yeah. That's what I've oh, heard. You got, have you ever been there? The, I have not. No, oh, I've not my, been there. You so are I'm, in for I'm, a treat. It's, it's okay. It's absolutely right. fantastic. As long as they have mocha lattes, I think I'll be. And then, right. by the way, if you're <laughs> if you're into a steak, I like Gibson's on Rush. 
So I have now Gibson's. I've been to. Oh, okay. Yeah, Gibson's. I've been yeah, to. I, I like. I, I I I I do like Gibson's very much. And 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 so you. But other than the, the time I'll see you, obviously this week. Do you have anything else? To no, with? actually, I'm I'm here. I'm around. So we've got the we got many members of the team coming in, and and we're just we're just gonna have lots of team meetings and talk about strategy. <laughs> and right. I just I love team team meetings, folks. That means that means alcohol that means wine now, just don't so you know give it a, don't give our meetings. secret sauce away this is how we retain all these wonderful people because we I just see. keep yes, exactly feeding right. them and, and and giving them lots to drink and they just seem to enjoy it so what what you yes, know what can i yes. say funny how that works out <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this episode. For Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 133, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. And when you subscribe, if you subscribe, one, leave us a note. Leave us a note on iTunes. Um, We would absolutely love a quick review there. That is how we rocket up the rankings there, and that would be super cool. Um, But also let us know. Hashtag us up at This Old Marketing on the Twitter. And, you know, we'd love to thank you personally for any and all of that. Um, That's how much we appreciate you as a subscriber to our little case of shenanigans here. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. Thank you so much to those who subscribed and also submitted story ideas this week. Um, And also, you can email us if you like the email thing. You can email us at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes, which are available on Monday night as we publish. And of course, within the show post at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it is your story to tell. You tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.